I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Amber Duke. I'm Ina Stepman. And I'm Will Chamberlain. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Evan Brooke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. On today's episode, as always, we have a diverse array of topics to get to. Amber's going to kick us off by talking about what appears to be the end of the fight to the extent there even was one for the GOP presidential nomination. Will is going to do a little bit of a postmortem on why Governor Ron DeSantis's bid for that nomination failed. Inez will talk a little bit about the standoff with Texas and the Biden administration over enforcing our actual borders and the recent Supreme Court decision with regard to that case. And then last but not least, I'll talk a little bit about the Biden administration's unfolding war on Israel. So with that, let's turn over to Amber first. Absolutely. So as you all can see, probably I am in the airport. I'm at uh, Boston Logan on my way back from New Hampshire, where um, the evening before recording of the podcast, the former president, Donald Trump, was able to trounce Nikki Haley by 11 percentage points. And I think it was pretty universally agreed upon that Nikki Haley basically had to come within six or seven points of Trump in order to prove that she had the capability of of even contesting him and challenging him in a legitimate manner. Although I would say that she had to outright win New Hampshire to even have a snowball's chance in hell of of convincing people that she could win the GOP nomination. So this is effectively the death knell for her campaign. Um, I talked to several Trump officials last night at an election night watch party in Nashua where they said that they do think that she's going to stay in till Super Tuesday, one of whom said it was because she is a, quote, psycho, <laughs> um, which is hysterical. But um, it all depends now, I think, on on whether or not the GOP mega donors and even some Democratic mega donors are willing to continue basically lighting their money on fire to keep her in the race. She spent $31 million on ads in New Hampshire since the start of 2023. She outspent Trump two to one in New Hampshire and still ended up losing by double digits. Um, she was, of course, counting on the fact that New Hampshire is a state that allows undeclared voters to vote in the GOP primary. The deadline for Democrats to change their party registration was in October. It looks like about 3,000 uh, people in New Hampshire did that. And 70% of Nikki Haley's voting share came from those undeclared voters. Um, and Trump just was able to outpace her with his support among Republican voters. She would have had to basically win all of the undeclareds in order to beat the former president, which was obviously a highly unlikely scenario um, to begin with. And then when we look at some of the exit polling, it becomes very obvious why Trump was able to win here, despite the high share of independent voters. The number one issue in New Hampshire was immigration, uh, which is a little bit different from the rest of the country, or at least when we see in national polls and in Iowa, where economy was the number one issue and immigration was number two. In New Hampshire, 41% of voters said that immigration was the most important issue to them. And this was something that was kind of missed by the mainstream media because what they don't consider is that it's not just the southern border that is a problem, but it's also the northern border. And we see uh, increasingly that individuals who are on terror watch list um, are coming across the border from Canada into the northern U.S. Um, addiction is a, is a very serious problem in New Hampshire. Whenever you have a state that has a, a heavy working class population and then cold, dark months um, for a significant portion of the year, addiction is, is something that affects a lot of families here. And so they're very impacted by the flow of fentanyl that's coming across both the northern and southern borders. Uh, and, and, and Trump was running ads over the past few weeks pretty heavily in New Hampshire that called out Nikki Haley for 2015 comments where she said that the GOP should not be referring to illegal immigrants as criminals. Um, there was a voiceover on that ad that sort of mockingly said um, that is what illegal means, Nikki. It means criminal. Um, so I just I didn't I don't really see a scenario where Nikki Haley could have one uh, here in New Hampshire. 
Um, but again, this is pretty much the end of her campaign. She doesn't have another state to look forward to that has the similar primary setup. In fact, she's not even going to be on the ballot in Nevada because the Nevada GOP decided to do a caucus instead of a primary this year. Nikki Haley's name is on the primary ballot, whereas Trump is participating in the caucus. So she can't win delegates there. And then the contest goes to South Carolina, her home state, where she doesn't have the advantage of being able to run tens of millions of dollars of ads to show voters who she is. In South Carolina, both her and Trump are known entities. So the potential for her to really uh, sway voters there is is a much more difficult task than it might have been in Iowa or New Hampshire. And so far, polls show Trump beating her by anywhere between 30 to 50 percentage points. So a proper trouncing. I think at this point, it's safe to say that the nomination is basically over. But I will kick it out to the group to see if anyone disagrees. Maybe they think there is some kind of path for Nikki Haley. Or maybe we just have thoughts on why she's staying in the race when it seems so obviously true that she does not have a path to victory. Yeah. Um, you know, when after Iowa, Nikki Haley kind of was made fun of a lot for saying, well, this is now a two person race, even though she came in third uh, behind Governor DeSantis. But she had a point in the sense that Iowa kind of disproved Governor DeSantis' thesis for how we might win the race. Like it would involve a surprise in Iowa and then kind of resetting expectations that that didn't happen. Um, Nikki Haley survived only because her thesis was yet to be tested. Like Iowa wasn't an important part of her path at all. And so it was just the fact that New Hampshire was a week later that she got to stick around and see what happened. And what happened in New Hampshire is she lost by 10. And that's really the end of that. New Hampshire is just a unique primary where you have this massive number of independents and even Democrats crossing over to vote um, and influence the Republican primary. Uh, you know, ultimately, Nikki Haley's relying on Democrat money and Democrat votes to try and win in New Hampshire. And even with that boost, she got she got trounced. It's not going to get better anywhere else. Um, there's she's likely to lose by 20 or more in South Carolina, her home state. Um, and so this nomination is is over. Uh, and I, I don't think, you know, I mean, I mean, that's that's that happens. That's what it is. But I think it's silly for her to continue. So I, I would just make a, a couple related points or at least points that are tangentially relevant, I think. Um, you've seen also the coalescing of kind of all wings of the party to some extent around Donald Trump, which is notable because to the extent Republicans are going to be Democrats in 2024. And I say that because I'm not entirely convinced by any stretch, as I've said before, that Joe Biden is ultimately going to be the nominee. Who knows who the nominee on the Democrat side may be? All resources need to be aligned because we should expect that there is going to be a counteroffensive from the regime writ large, the likes of which we've probably never seen before. 2020 had kind of the, the quote unquote cabal that Molly Ball talked about and that I like to reference a lot, this conspiracy out in the open, essentially, but to some extent covert to link all of these civil society groups, so-called lawfare entities, the media, and really the administrative state to sabotage and subvert the opposition, namely Trump. And I suspect we're going to see a massive onslaught again this time around to, quote unquote, fortify the election, the makings of which we talked about a little bit last week when we discussed the NBC News piece talking about these groups preparing for lawfare against Trump and, and suing future employees in a Trump administration. Setting that aside, some of the endorsements garnered lately by Trump Ranged from John Cornyn last night to Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Marco Rubio, and obviously Tim Scott on the eve of the New Hampshire contest, uh, which was a blow, obviously, at least optically, to his fellow South Carolinian, Nikki Haley. So put that together, you have the, the party uniting. Um, another point worth making is that, you know, the argument that would be made by the likes of Haley and... Um, others in the shrinking establishment kind of behind Haley is, well, she's more electable in a general. And, you know, if you if you believe in or play out that kind of reasoning and you say, like, you know, what, first of all, why is she hanging around? Well, one of the things we've talked about before is, you know, the idea that there's going to be some black swan event that is going to suddenly make her appealing. Or, you know, if you want to play out the conspiracy theory games that you get to a convention and then. Uh, Trump is somehow taken out of the running under you know legal duress or otherwise, 
And then you have essentially a brokered selection of a nominee, which I do believe is possible under the RNC rules, uh, but again, highly unlikely. But maybe she's trying to accumulate as many delegates as she can in advance of a time where delegates might somehow become unbound. Set that aside for a moment. I thought there was really telling empirical evidence from real clear of just how strong Trump looks at this point. And the Biden people are saying, well, voters aren't there yet in terms of understanding this is a binary decision. This is going to be a two person race. And, you know, the fears about Donald Trump and the hatred of Donald Trump among independents and Democrats is, you know, ultimately going to lead to a massive shift in the polls in Biden's direction. Here's what real clear polling uh, wrote earlier this week. President Joe Biden is trailing former President Trump in six of seven battleground states, according to the RCP polling averages. While Trump is up only 2.9 percent over Biden nationally, he's averaging a four and a half percent lead over Biden in the swing states of Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina and Georgia. Biden won all of these states except North Carolina in 2020. Obviously, polls can be deficient. Polls move. There's an eternity before we actually get to the general election. But I do think that points to the strength of Trump's candidacy at this point. And the, the major question, as I've you know long held, is can Republicans actually win a presidential election with the way in which the rules have been jury-rigged against a Republican winning the presidency, plus dealing with the onslaught of a whole-of-regime effort to do everything possible to undermine and destroy the Republican presidential candidate? And obviously, there's no one to date who's been more reviled by that regime than Trump. So that remains to me the ultimate question at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, first of all, just for my fellow Americans who are from west of the Colorado River, Nevada, guys. Um, second, oh, you bunch of East Coasters. Um, no, I mean, I, I think uh, what's to say about Nikki Haley's campaign? First of all, I'm I'm happy for her to continue uh it, wasting her donors time and money uh, in in this campaign if for no other reason than uh, pissing off Trump more makes her less likely to be the VP nominee uh so I'm really don't object but I agree with with everyone who says the race is basically over it is over uh, Trump will be the GOP nominee barring some horrific event um so I think it's worth considering why Nikki Haley, was such a bad choice and why honestly even doing this well um was a little bit surprising to me I, she's just demonstrated over and over again because the reason usually given is foreign policy and maybe that's true for some percentage of the electorate um i i think just she just very consistently has instincts that not only are contrary to the republican base but demonstrate that she doesn't even know that she's stepping in it right um she doesn't even know that she's running contrary to the the sort of dominant base positions of the Republican Party because she's so out of touch she doesn't even realize when she's putting her her foot in her mouth on these things right so I, I had just a long list of of really quickly of the the ones I remember off the top of my head during her campaign one launching her campaign with like her racial and sexual characteristics and playing the victim on the basis of them and then continuing that throughout the entire campaign right up until you know two days ago where she was crying about being bullied for being brown. Um, you know, to the the Disney flap early on in the race where she was like, Disney, come on down to South Carolina. Like, we want your jobs. I demonstrating absolutely no understanding of the relationship between corporate America, the changing relationships between, you know, corporate entities and the Republican Party in the last decade. Um, she had that weird proposition to register anonymous accounts, like, again, showing no indication that she knows what time it is or where we're at in terms of the antagonism between um, federal law enforcement to some extent and free speech exercise, uh, the exercise of free speech on the right and the right to assemble on the right. Um, then, like, flip-flopping and then lying about flip-flopping on on minor transition, which should be like a very, very easy issue for a Republican nominee. Like Chris Christie um, defended, quote unquote, parents' rights. And we talked about it on this podcast um, at that time. But he knew, like Chris Christie knew he's advancing a position that was unpopular in the Republican Party. She didn't even seem to know that when she first started talking about it, which again, just goes to how bad her instincts are for the current moment. So, I mean, in all, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy to, like I said, I'm happy to see her continue um, this campaign, if only to antagonize uh, herself further with the person who's picking VP candidates right now. Um, 
but yeah, I, I, I was surprised she even had the bump that she did. And it's a good reminder for those of us, I think, in this little NatCon corner of the world that we immediately saw how all of these ideological positions of hers were totally at odds with the base. But people who don't pay that much attention to politics until there's a presidential election were just impressed that she was well-spoken on the debate stage, right? Um, so, and she was able to be articulate about, about a few things, right? So I think it's a good reminder for us that we are very, very steeped in this stuff. And, you know, that's not always a good predictor of where people are. Okay, moving on to the next topic. Uh, the next topic is uh, Governor DeSantis over the weekend uh, announced that he was withdrawing from the presidential race. Um, last week, I didn't talk about this because I was a former employee of the DeSantis campaign. So I agreed with him. I, I saw no path for him and thought he should drop out. Um, and I think it's just a fundamentally good decision after Iowa losing by 30. Um, there really was no reasonable path to go forward. You could only re expect results to get worse because you, you basically were relying on a surprise in Iowa. You didn't get one. And at that point, if this race was going to be like anything like 2016, uh, once there's a sort of presumptive nominee or once somebody seems to have won, the results get really bad for the also rans really quickly. So I think it was the right decision to withdraw. Um, in terms of doing a postmortem, I mean, I think first there's the external factors. So I think the two big external factors that made a, a, a DeSantis campaign basically um, you know, a lost cause almost from the beginning um, were the indictments and then Trump's continued strength in general election polling and Biden's weakness. So the indictments basically took every took a lot of the wind out of the sails. And I can tell you internally, it was just very hard. There were lots of internal discussions, like how do we respond to the indictments? Like what is the right messaging here? Because it's not really a good option. You either are in the position where you're, you know, out there supporting Trump aggressively like Vivek, but then why are you running? Or you're critical of him, in which, but you're then you're putting yourself at odds with 80% of the base. And I, I think there's just a natural rally around the flag effect that comes from these indictments. And it was a really nasty lawfare campaign. I mean, it's unprecedented. You had the, they indicted Trump four times in four separate jurisdictions in a little over four months, uh, state and federal court. It's unique, um, it's bizarre, and it deserves to be punished. And then the second thing, the thing that I think, if there was any hope really of, of beating Trump in a world where he was indicted four times, uh, that hope would have come from weak general election numbers. But those weak general election numbers weren't there because Biden is very weak in the general. And I mean, people might say that's a polling psyop, but I don't know about that because I can tell you just for one simple example, things like Israel and Gaza has massively split the Democratic base. Uh, American Muslims are furious with Joe Biden over his position on Israel. I mean, I think it's pretty bizarre because I don't see how he could take another position and that the position they ask him to take is unbelievably unpopular broadly. But American Muslims are furious. They wanted him to side with Gaza and they're going to say stay home. I've, I, I can speak both of you actually look at the polling and from personal anecdote, having spoken to some American Muslim friends. They 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 can't stand Biden and they think Trump would be better. Um, and it's and that's a remarkable switch because most of these people voted for Democrats and both voted for Biden rather in, in 2020. So because Trump was strong in the continued general election point, there's no real electability push to try and say, oh, well, he can't win. It's like, well, actually, he can. Biden's really weak. He's 80 years old. He's very unpopular. Everybody thinks the country's on the wrong track. And he's splitting his base with some, some wedge issues. So those two external factors had a real dramatic effect. Internally, I mean, I think there was the early June struggle in terms of, you know, the, the DeSantis campaign hired a ton of people, including myself and then spent a ton of money in about six weeks and realized this was not sustainable and had to lay off a bunch of people. And that ultimately led to some bad process stories and sort of failure to launch type stuff. Um, and, you know, there was, you know, there was some messaging issues early on where you had like, I think at the top level of the campaign, it was very kind of conservative, but then you had staffers doing some crazy stuff. So you, you had, you had some problems, but I don't think any of that would have been a, an issue because it was all, it all happened six months ago. It's not the kind of thing that would have stuck around and been, you know, been salient. I mean, most people forgot about it at this point. Uh, there, but it, I think it was ultimately those, those external factors that really made this campaign just a losing cause to begin with and, and made Trump's coronation sort of inevitable. Um, so, you know, I'm proud that DeSantis ran. I think still think he was the best candidate in the sense of who'd be the best president. Still think he has a chance to become an excellent president in, uh, again, if he ever runs, I, I hope he does. And uh, I, you know, sad to see him go, but I, I think it was obviously the right decision for him to drop out. So I think you're right, Will, in that the external factors did probably make 
even a perfect campaign, um, pretty much null and void. I think I wrote back in maybe the spring of 2021 um, about sort of the DeSantis doctrine and everything he was doing in Florida and and was very complimentary of that. But my caveat at the time was if Trump steps aside and not only did that not happen, but he ended up getting this outside boost from all of the lawfare and all of the perceived injustices that he was facing, um, which really rallied the GOP base around him. Um, if I may talk a little bit about just some of the other reporting I've been doing from an outsider perspective on maybe what went wrong with the campaign. Um, from what I hear, uh, the, the governor is a little bit of a micromanager, which is kind of a hard thing to be when you're trying to scale to a national campaign. Um, I also think maybe the inclusion of uh, the first lady, Casey, on big decisions related to the campaign was not the best idea. Just based on people who have sat in on meetings with her, she doesn't really seem to un understand campaign infrastructure and how um, things like data and micro-targeting and ad placements work. And so there were a lot of meetings that she was in that maybe she just shouldn't have been. Um, but again, that's that's not something that would take down an entire campaign. One of the biggest issues, I think, was just the hiring of Jeff Rowe and Axiom Strategies to run Never Back Down Pack. Um, Jeff Rowe was sort of known for hopping from campaign to campaign, particularly losing campaigns and making tons of money off of them. His consulting fees are very, very high. And um, it seemed to me like his sort of party machine pushed out outside vendors that maybe could have told um, DeSantis and the DeSantis campaign that some um, bad decisions were being made or the messaging wasn't breaking through. Um, but they had a perverse incentive to keep him in the race as long as possible um, and not really change much because they were making tons of money. Um, so that was an unfortunate factor in this as well. Um, but I, I hope that, you know, DeSantis sticks around. I think he has a bright political future. And I agree that he definitely dropped out at the right time and trying to unite the GOP and and hopefully um, put his focus back on Florida for, for a few years. Yeah, I I really I can't speak to the internals of the campaign, but I really agree with Will's two turning points. Um, I do think that was kind of the crux. Well, well, the electability argument was really really important to the crux of DeSantis's campaign, and the second part of it was I'm going to be I'm going to essentially implement better. I'm I'm going to be a better executive on the Trump agenda. Um, again, I think once just anecdotally. It, both, both sides, if you look at where the polls really started to separate, where in the beginning of the race, DeSantis was behind, but looked like he had a shot. And then after where he's just in a, a free fall, uh, like slope downwards, that turning point is when the indictments are filed against Trump and anecdotally among like friends and family members. That's when people went from, I like Trump, I like DeSantis, I'm probably going to vote for Trump, but I'm open to DeSantis to no, we, we absolutely cannot uh, countenance, you know, uh, the regime telling us we can't vote for Trump. We have to do it um, just to like show them that they cannot do this to us. They cannot take out the candidate via illegitimate lawfare uh, rather than through the democratic process. And I really did, I think it's hard to overestimate that effect. Um, but in terms of the only thing that I would, if, if I had a line, maybe Will, you can be my line. If I had a line to the DeSantis campaign, I would say just, just be a sort of uncomfortable competent executive killer don't try to kiss babies stop with the can lines it's not you you're not ever going to be it even just straight up admit like i'm not charming like trump i know how to get things done you know I, i'm not i'm not going to be like as funny i'm not going to be i just i don't know i don't know why we keep trying to run what seems to me a very like old sort of slick politicians playbook that maybe is something that worked a little bit for nikki haley but if you look on the other hand, somebody, the popularity of somebody like Bernie Sanders, who is absolutely not um, sort of slick and perfected, it's because he's authentic. To, he's authentically a crotchety, you know, octogenarian communist. And people see that that's actually what he is. Um, and and there's a certain appeal of that. And and I, I feel like trying to transform DeSantis's personality um, to make it like sort of more TV friendly or whatever I think that backfired. Just personally, that was my observation. I saw him before. He he clearly was in a lot of rooms with a lot of people, like trying to fix some of his presentation issues, but seeing him give speeches and present 
yeah, like he wasn't the most slick person in the world. He wasn't like easy, but he had energy. He had competence. Like he felt comfortable in his own skin. And I just, I, I don't know. I, I think that that actually probably, if there's anything that really had an effect on the campaign that was not an external force, it was probably just DeSantis being so coached and uncomfortable when he should just embrace being slightly awkward, but being like competent and a killer and just lean into that, lean into who he is, I guess. I don't know. That's a very uh, pop psychology sort of uh, um, postmortem on the campaign. But that that would be the only thing that I think he really could have done much better. Everything else to me seems like the sort of chaos that's on every campaign. And I, I really have a hard time chalking up the failure of this campaign in particular to those things. Briefly, it, it's an obvious point, but I do think it's a point worth remembering when we step out of the weeds for a second. Donald Trump is, I don't think it's an overstatement, kind of a world historical, unique political force. There's never been anyone like him. There probably never will be anyone like him again in the history of America. Someone who was never elected to anything but a ubiquitous figure in American life in so many different aspects, uh, propelled into that role and then achieves what he achieved. It's a unique force that draws crowds unlike anyone else. And, you know, that should be respected also, setting aside the lawfare and everything else. The other point that I would make, though, is that I think Governor DeSantis did the shrewd thing, the right thing on the politics and the merits, both short, medium and long term of getting out of the way and getting behind Donald Trump. It's important to note that Trump is, I would argue, again, a world historical kind of political force and figure. But by the same token, after the next four plus years, someone else is going to have to pick up that mantle or create a new path or a new vision, build on that vision, build on that political support. And obviously, Ron DeSantis wants to be one of the people in the room vying to be the successor, carrying that mantle or an adjacent mantle. And I think a lot of Republicans are probably thinking about what the future looks like in a post-Trump world. And so from that perspective, it pays to kiss and make up, get a thousand percent behind Donald Trump, do everything possible to defeat Joe Biden and then live to fight in those future elections down the road. Uh, so with that, let's go back to Inez to talk a little bit about an entirely different issue, Texas versus the Biden administration. Um, I guess not an entirely different issue, given what Amber told us about the primacy of immigration uh, in, in exit polling. And by the way, um, just as a, a side note before I begin, it is amazing how that doesn't get headline billing. Immigration in almost every issue poll is is ranked one through three. And somehow that never makes it into the write-ups uh, in, in mainstream news sources. It's always, it's about the economy or it's about some other issue that pops up and bubbles up into those top three. But immigration is almost always in the top three issues of issue polls, like time after time after time. And it really does speak to uh, both parties as well as um, the the media's total silence on an issue that, that really does affect the lives of Americans. And they consistently tell us so in polls. Um, but so on that issue, immigration, uh, last week I highlighted, or two weeks ago, I highlighted the potential for some very interesting legal battles coming out of Texas. Um, Texas had passed independent state laws uh, attempting to stem the flood of migrants over the border um, in, into Texas, So, but over the national border. And immigration is a, a, federal, um, a federal power. The feds have plenary power. Um, there and there's there's precedent on the books to that ex, um, to that ex, uh, sort of direction. However, there's still some really interesting issues um, that the courts will have to explore. What's the difference if if the um, if the state is just duplicating federal law, right? Because on the books, Congress has passed immigration laws. Um, it is an executive decision of uh, assigning priorities. Um, in this case, none of the priority, right? The, the Biden administration has decided it's not at all a priority um, to actually enforce the laws on the books. But on the books, there's not conflict um, between some of some of the, the provisions of Texas law and um, what Congress has said about the border. So you're talking about overlap. Um, this is going to be a reconsideration of the precedents in 2012 with Arizona and SB 1070, if anyone remembers that fight with a very different Supreme Court. So um, there, there's been a blow in the last couple of days. Uh, there, there was, but I want to actually put this up because people are just spreading this news and they're saying, oh, like um, Amy Coney Barrett and 
um, Justice Roberts are siding with the left in a smacking down an injunction from the Fifth Circuit that prevented the feds from cutting razor wire. Um, so this is razor wire that was placed by the state of Texas on private property, which makes this really interesting, right? So with the permission of the private property owners. So there is a private interest here in defending not just the borders of the United States, uh, but also just merely defending the line of your property um, from anyone, from migrants or, or from Americans, right? So anyway, there, there's all kinds of interesting layers legally to this case. Um, but what happened is the, the Fifth Circuit, while it adjudicates the merits of that case, put in, in place an injunction. Um, the Biden administration, because the Border Patrol has been cutting the razor wire. So the Biden administration appealed um, up to the Supreme Court saying that Texas is interfering with the operations of border patrol on the national border and that it has no right to do that. Um, and, and basically arguing that that injunction uh, should be should be smacked down. And that's the measure that uh, Barrett and Roberts agreed with the left on and, and got rid of that injunction. So the Biden administration will be able to go down there and cut that wire once again. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for you guys to weigh in as to what Texas should do in this situation, if they should follow or not um, the, the the order from the court. Uh, that being said, I would caution everyone not to completely like sort of freak out and pile on the court yet. Um, in my view, uh, it, it these justices are actually these, these five. I'm really curious what the other four, um, what their rationale was for not actually deciding with um, Barrett and Roberts and the, and the liberals, because the current um, the the current precedent is very much in favor of the Biden administration. I don't think it ought to be, and I think this is will be an opportunity for this court to reconsider that precedent. But that's not like the an, a, a injunction in this case before the merits were even decided by the Fifth Circuit um, is. I, I can understand why that would have been an unusual step for the court to take. So I would just caution everyone not to completely freak out. Maybe Will has a different view on this than I do, but I, I still think there's a very good case or a very good chance that this case will end up in the Supreme Court on its actual merits as opposed to this injunction, and that we'll, we'll get a, a good decision from the court on the actual merits that retools some of that that precedent and gives some states, gives us the border states some limited ability to actually defend themselves against an invasion coming up from the border. So just don't freak out yet is all I would say. It could be bad. I'm not sure it is bad, but what do you think Texas should do? Because the bare facts of this case is the Biden administration is going to send border patrol to cut razor wire on the border. That's what they're expending resources to do. Well, I guess I'll go ahead on this one. Um, I, you know, I had a different take than a lot of people who were very angry at Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, I, I to a degree, I think she's pretty moderate, but I, I come from being a lawyer. If you take constitutional law, you realize that if the states and the federal government ever butt heads on a federal issue, things generally don't go well for the state, right? Uh, they usually, the federal government has the supremacy clause. There's a ton of legislation about immigration that would preempt whatever the state wants to do. And so, you know, if the federal government decides in its wisdom that it doesn't want to enforce immigration law, the state can go to court to try and force them to do it. But the idea that the state could do self-help to protect itself and then in the federal government says, no, we want to you know, facilitate these federal objectives by having access to the border. It's just, it's a really, really challenging argument. I was surprised we even got four justices for it. That's not to say it's like right or good, um, but I thought I saw somebody had a very, um, a good take on it, which is that the, the federal constitution is not designed for the scenario where the presidency and the executive branch are run by people who want to destroy the country. It's not, there's not a great fail-safe mechanism for that. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really, really challenging. I hope Texas is able to succeed just on a substantive level, but, you know, I guess I'm a little more skeptical of their odds and litigation here. I mean, the federal government's behavior is absurd, but they're just, there's so much precedent saying that they kind of get to do what they want when it comes to immigration. And that's the precedent that allows will allow President Trump ultimately to like overrule whatever some liberal state wants to do on the border too. And and so you got to wonder, I mean, I, it's just, it's just frustration with how incompetent Biden is and how destructive his policies are. Yeah. To me, there's a fundamental question and, and maybe it'll get a hashed out in the case of did the founders set up a system whereby states have to allow an invasion if the federal government invites the invasion. 
hard to conceive of that. If the Constitution is not a suicide pact and if states have the authority, the duty, the obligation to protect health and public safety, isn't that a rationale for defending borders? Now, obviously, I take Will's point, and I think it's probably the point that the court may ultimately end up at, and maybe it's illustrated in the five to four already, that the feds have preeminent authority here. And if you're a state or you're any representative and you believe that the federal government, that the executive branch is permitting an invasion, then Congress has remedies and those and the people have remedy and the people have a remedy of voting out the president and Congress has the remedy of oversight and power of the purse and impeachment. Is that a uh, legal argument that holds water? Maybe. Is it a political argument that holds water? I think not. And that that does create kind of the what do you do if you're in Texas's shoes? And Texas has kind of vowed to fight on, but it's been kind of cryptic about what the policy is going forward. It just seems to me asinine on its face that if the federal government really engages in an insurrectionary act of saying don't have authority, don't have any sovereignty in a country, that the citizens just have to do with it and that state and local leaders don't have an obligation to actually defend and protect the people. Again, federal authority is usually going to trump the state authority and particularly it dominates prerogative wise in terms of immigration. But I don't see how practically that can ultimately stand. Uh, however, maybe the Supreme Court is going to say, you know, you're you're out of luck, states. This is on the federal government and it's it's on Congress, uh, which would be disastrous for the American people. But, you know, they may argue that as a constitutional imperative, uh, an invasion has to be the law of the land that prevails until someone else is in office. I'll keep my remarks fairly brief, as you all, I think, have covered the legal aspects of this pretty great. And I, I think I'm the only non-lawyer in the chat. So um, just a couple of newsy items related to this. Um, the Texas Congressman Chip Roy has encouraged Texas state officials to continue in spite of the Supreme Court's decision to try to enforce the border on their own terms, basically forcing the feds to take further action. And it looks like there's some video that came out um, shortly after the Supreme Court's decision that do show Texas um, agents putting down more razor wire um, in the Rio Grande River um, uh, and other uh, impediments to illegal crossings. So um, it looks like they're basically saying, all right, uh, the Supreme Court said the feds can come down and remove the razor wire. We're going to make it even more difficult for them to do that. Um, and I think that's the right move from a political standpoint, um, 100%, because, again, as we talked about throughout this episode, immigration is a top issue for American voters right now. They want to see that their elected officials are taking the border seriously. And as we repeatedly have these spending fights in Congress where the Republicans fail to get meaningful border security packages because they either um, refuse to uh, even creep close to a potential partial government shutdown or because they just keep on voting for these continuing resolutions, um, somebody's somebody's got to do something. And so it's good to see Texas continue to stand up. Um, pending another another uh, case going to the Supreme Court. So I will uh, transition to my own topic now, which is a little bit about what's going on in the Middle East and uh, the outlines of a Biden administration policy towards Israel, really as a proxy for what I've argued is it's Iran first policy to make Iran the regional strong course and reprise the Obama administration policy that that is actually continuing. So there have been a number of developments lately in terms of the exacting pressure the Biden administration is putting on Israel to essentially get to an ending of the war. And I'll lay out kind of four key points. I did this in a tweet and we can go back to it in a few months and see if it's played out this way. But I think that the Biden administration is making clear in its words and actions that its objectives for the Middle East are as follows, as follows. One, topple Benjamin Netanyahu, who is viewed as a total impediment to the, maintaining the pro-Iran status quo that the Biden administration wants, including via proxy Hamas, to secure a, a de facto Israeli loss in that war in which Hamas is not completely obliterated and actually jihadists are freed as a consequence of whatever the resolution is. And that's already happened, of course, in part through the hostage exchanges that have already taken place. 
and arguably through the micromanaging and stymieing and thwarting of Israel's incursion originally and in the subsequent months uh, with regard to the war on Hamas. Third, work with a more liberal replacement than Bibi Netanyahu to implement or try to implement a two-state solution, so-called, uh, with another side that ultimate solution is to see uh, Israel destroyed at the end of the day. And then four, protect Hezbollah specifically, and again, Iran and its proxies more generally. So there have been a few data points recently that point to what I think are these uh, nefarious objectives that are going to totally undermine America's national interest, that totally upend what Trump was trying to do, which was use force only prudently and in limited situations, but overwhelmingly like taking out Qasem Soleimani and while imposing a maximum pressure on Iran and its proxies, but not militarily primarily, to while at the same time helping to unite Israel and our Sunni Arab partners and allies in the region to form a bulwark so that America could extricate itself from that region while probably also preventing the creation of a vacuum that China would ultimately fill, among others. So what has happened in recent weeks? Well, for one thing, the Biden team has been working closely with Egypt and Qatar, which is really uh, should be read as Hamas, frankly, to develop this 90-day plan, which was rejected flatly out of hand by Netanyahu, but which I think illustrates exactly what this administration wants. Under this plan, basically, it would be exchange hostages for ridding Israeli prisons of jihadist murderers, including some of them who perpetrated October 7th, and ultimately end the war as a, as a consequence. So you end the war on the terms of jihadists get freed, you get your hostages back, but Hamas is not completely destroyed. And the day after plan is a plan that's going to be overseen and imposed essentially by the Biden administration. And what is their plan? Well, their plan is to impose a so-called two-state solution. Uh, we can talk about the folly of that. Uh, it's been proposed endlessly over and over again and continually blown up literally by the Arab side on this. But it's also worth noting that it wants a revitalized Palestinian authority, so-called, uh, to oversee that Palestinian Arab state. Well, it's worth noting that the Palestinian Authority run by Fatah, which is essentially Hamas lights, uh, endorsed the acts on October 7th. Uh, is actually has dedicated itself to paying the salaries and paying for the family members of the October 7th jihadists and actually wants to engage in an alliance now, some kind of coalition with Hamas going forward. Also to the Palestinian Arab peoples themselves. Uh, here's what the polling shows since October 7th. Three quarters of Palestinian Arabs approve of the October 7th mini Holocaust. 75% support a Palestinian state from the river to the sea, which means the end of Israel, even though our college students can't tell you what the river or the sea is uh, in that formulation. Support for Hamas in the West Bank, so outside of Gaza, has tripled in the three months since October 7th. Support for armed struggle in the West Bank has increased during this time from 54% to 68% to end, quote unquote, Israeli occupation. What is Anthony Blinken's response to that in supporting the two-state solution? Here's what he said, and I believe this was at the World Economic Forum at Davos. So he was in a conversation with New York Times' Thomas Friedman, and he says, when in previous times we came close to resolving the Palestinian question, getting a Palestinian state, I think the view then was that Arab leaders, Palestinian leaders, had not done enough to prepare their own people for this profound change. I think a challenge now, a question now is, is Israeli society prepared to engage in these questions? Is it prepared to have that mindset? So Israel is the impediment to peace here after it suffers a mini Holocaust and when the entirety of the Palestinian Arab population essentially is showing its true colors, that it is hostile to the existence of Israel in and of itself. But Israel is really the intransigent issue here. It's the stiff-necked Jews in Jerusalem that are standing in the way. There's also been a whispering campaign that's been effectuated against Netanyahu, and he obviously faces plenty of domestic opposition as well post-October 7th, and before it with judicial reform, and before that with uh, various other conflicts internally. So I pointed out back in November that there's this Politico leak. Uh, the headline was, Netanyahu may not last, Biden and aides increasingly believe. This is like weeks after an existential attack on Israel. And the subhead was, the Israeli prime minister's Political obituary has been written before, but U.S. officials are already gauging potential successors. 
Andrea Mitchell recently wrote in NBC News, three senior U.S. officials say the Biden administration is looking past Netanyahu to try to achieve its goals in the region. Several senior U.S. officials told NBC News that Netanyahu will not be there forever. It's trying to lay the groundwork with other Israeli and civil society leaders in anticipation of an eventual post-Netanyahu government. Uh, in writing about the loggerheads between the U.S. administration and Bibi, the one focus uh, where the administration officials say they've had successes in preventing, restraining Israel from taking out Hezbollah to the north, which threatens with a massively larger threat than Hamas posed, namely in the way of hundreds of thousands of rockets and missiles. Uh, last but not least, sort of a side point, but related uh, the administration is now looking to China to intercede with respect to the Houthi attacks that have made the Red Sea, Red sea essentially a no-go zone, which has dramatic implications minimally for commerce relating to Europe and beyond that as well. Um, so what does all of this look like for the U.S. national interest? Well, I think ultimately it's it's cataclysmic for the U.S. national interest, even to the extent the Biden administration is stymied in its plans, uh, let's say. Hamas uh, ultimately is obliterated, which is definitely an open question at this point. Um, let's say that there does not emerge uh, a massive multi-state uh, huge war that breaks out in the Middle East. What is the chaos going to look like that a Republican and pres president would inherit after Joe Biden? Uh, all around, this looks like a cataclysmic situation. I think the administration's efforts to push for a quote-unquote peace, which is really Iran and its proxies maintaining dominance is ultimately going to lead to substantially more bloodshed and chaos. And then you have the domestic pressure that Will alluded to of American Muslims and those college kids who I mentioned who don't know what river or sea is being referred to. That pressure, plus the radicals that are already in the Biden administration, just set us up for a further, I think, cataclysmic displays. So with all of that laid out there, you know, I'd be interested for, you know, what are your kind of NatCon takes on you know, what should Republicans be doing to essentially combat the policy that's unfolding? How do we stop the intervention in the Middle East that is actually occurring on the side of some of our worst adversaries, including in Iran, that's frankly been at war with the U.S. since 1979? Yeah, I, just, I only have two brief points. One is, uh, of course, there is this completely false idea that the, the problem with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that uh, we haven't found the exact magical borders that both sides can be satisfied with. Uh, of course, the the polls that Ben referred to uh, put a lie to that idea and all, really always have in this process, um, which is why the Trump administration broke the brains of the, the sort of D.C. policy blob by certain, simply circumventing around this problem and continuing to work on other problems in the Middle East, um, which was remarkably successful with the Abraham Accords, et cetera. Um, the, the only brief other point domestically that I would make uh, is while I agree with every single thing that Ben just said, uh, it is likely that Biden will be the last Democratic uh, leader or president who is even this pro-Israel. Um so I'm, I'm not talking about like a couple guys in the Senate, like obviously Fetterman will continue to be, but I'm saying that the next Democratic president, if you look at all of the uh, trends within the party, uh, both elite and on the, the grassroots level, uh, I think this is probably the last Democratic president who will open, will at least like mouth the platitudes of being uh, a strong ally to Israel. I'll go ahead and just tell a recent story that I wrote about the pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas contingent at Boston University, which has not gotten as much attention, of course, as their compatriots at Harvard. But I think it's an important demonstration um, to people who still believe that um, cracking down on these the actions of these student protesters is about free speech or um, is somehow uh, a a means of politically targeting them. Um, the students at Boston University who are affiliated with Students for Justice, Justice in Palestine openly celebrated what happened on October 7th, described these people as resistance fighters um, and freedom fighters, said that Hamas actually had a, a right and an obligation to so-called so resist Israel with their actions on October 7th, um, repeatedly um, tore down hostage posters, painted anti-Semitic graffiti around campus, 
Um, so this is the type of thing that that Jewish students are facing on campus. And this is the Democratic Party's base um, to both Inez and, and Ben's points about where I think the Democratic Party is going on this issue um, very, very quickly. Yeah, uh, credit to the Israeli government for standing firm and deciding that they were going to finish off Hamas regardless of what um, the American administration was saying. You know, I'm sure Biden and Blinken have put on plenty of pressure, as Ben has described, but I'm just I'm just heartened to see that they're willing to stand up for their people and um, not let the United States uh, dictate to them how exactly they're going to conduct their affairs right on their border. So with that, we'll uh, jump to parting shots and I'll tee us up with a just really quick uh, point. The New York Times had uh, an interesting attempted hit piece a few days before we recorded on the Claremont Institute, which uh, you may take as, well, the Claremont Institute is actually doing things that think tanks uh, on the right have never done historically, which is uh, actually been really effective at effectuating policy changes at the state, local, the posture certainly of federal officials when it comes to combating uh, DEI and wokeism writ large. Worth checking out uh, the attempted hit piece on the New York Times side, and then also the reply from Claremont Institute of the American Mind, which makes really strong uh, counterpoints against the attempted hit from the New York Times. Yeah, I I, uh, I think the New York Times really uh, screwed the pooch on that one. It's one of those things where New York, the New York Times thought it would be really horrifying to reveal these emails. And uh, I mean, I, I don't think the average American is uh, as horrified as the New York Times by a little like mild racial banter back and forth on, on emails. Like it really wasn't that explosive. It was kind of funny. Um, my 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 final thought um, is just following up on on the uh, Texas case. Um, I don't think it's nearly as uh, one-sided as I think Will reluctantly thinks it is. Uh, I, I know that uh, you you wish it were different. Um, just looking at the Arizona against U.S. decision from 2012, I mean, first of all, you have this bizarre um, 5-3 decision with Roberts jumping ship because Kagan recused herself um, as often with Roberts, not with like a real clear judicial philosophy. Um and really what you end up happening in there that case, like just to avoid basically the 4-4 split and no real answer on this question. Um, and, and you have two distinct theories that come out of the dissent to that case, either one of which I think applies in this case. Um, first, you have Scalia advancing something that he called the concurrent state sovereignty theory. Um and saying that there are some affirmative obligations from early precedent, uh, early like country or early United States, basically precedent that states do have uh, not only the power, but the obligation to repel invasion and to repel like sort of unwanted persons coming across their borders. Um, and then Thomas advancing basically the theory that I mentioned, but kind of skated by in, in passing, there actually, there is a question of whether or not there is an actual conflict here, right? So the question is the Biden administration will say, this is how we want to use our resources to enforce the laws that Congress has passed. But there are at least portions of what Texas has done, and, and there will probably be different arguments for each one of the laws they passed and each one of the actions they've taken, um, but there are actions and laws that Texas has passed that are on paper, not in conflict with federal law. The question is whether the administrative priorities of the Biden administration in terms of where they put their resources dictates where the state, whether the state can duplicate federal law with their own resources and priorities. Essentially, right, the Biden administration, the official that we know politically, right, that this is because they want to leave the border open and they want people coming across. But in terms of legally, what they're saying is we want to focus our border patrol resources, right, on, um, let's say, on cartels or drug trafficking or whatever it is. And to that extent, we are not concerned. Um, we don't have the resources to address every single migrant who is illegally crossing our border, right? That's their posture. But if the state then comes in and says, well, okay, fine, feds, like you, you're, you don't have the resources to enforce the law and you're, you're applying your resources as you see fit, fine, but can we come in with the exact same 
law as you have. So there's no actual conflict between state and federal law, but can we use our own resources to enforce this, right? And that was essentially what was at issue in Arizona against the United States that I mentioned in 2012. Um, the court is compositionally very different than it was then. And that's why I think I, I think this case has potential. I wouldn't, again, I would not freak out over this one um, injunction, like smacking down this injunction uh, on behalf of, like, without even putting out an opinion, changing precedent that's on the books. That would have been a really very, very bold step for the court. But when the issues come before the court on the merits, I'm much more hopeful that uh, that this court will will decide and give, again, give states not, you know, the ability to defy the federal government and their plenary power over immigration, but the ability of the states to use their own resources towards duplicating what the, because the law of the United States is not that these people are allowed to come across the border, right? That is, that is essentially a priorities decision on the basis of the the Biden administration. And so I, I think this has potential. I think, um, you know, look, I could be totally wrong and Roberts and and um, and Barrett could could uh, sort of screw us all uh, and flip to the other side, and that's totally possible. Um, I just wouldn't. I, I would caution against rending our garments yet. I think this case has potential, and I think it has the potential to reshape our precedent on this in a way that will, for the first time, actually move the situation on the border. Because if states have the ability to at least call out the feds and say, well. This is what you have on the books. We're just doing what you have on the books with our own resources. That could really transform the border. So anyway, that's my two cents. We'll see if it's true. My final thoughts will be on the fact that CVS is closing its store in the Columbia Heights neighborhood of Washington, D.C. This is the latest example of a retail shop um, of closing its doors because of the rise of petty theft, as well as organized smash and grab rings, uh, which seems to be the case in this Columbia Heights store where employees say that uh, groups of individuals, particularly teenagers, um, which seems to be the case with both the rising retail thefts and carjackings in major cities, um, know when new shipments are coming in, they stake out the store and then they immediately ransack all of the goods that are coming in before they can even make it onto the store shelves. If you see pictures of this Columbia Heights CVS. It looks basically post-apocalyptic. The shelves are completely empty. They don't even have goods to put behind plexiglass um, locked cases. That's really how bad it is. Um, we heard recently as well that uh, I think it was an REI uh, was closing in, in Portland because of rising theft. And so this is just a, a common problem. Uh, Nike closed recently, Nordstrom, Target, all kinds of stores over in Portland and Seattle. Um, and it's because our uh, our leaders in states and cities have decided that they are okay, essentially, with a certain level of crime um, because it advances their idea of racial justice. They believe that it'll um, reduce so-called over-policing and racial disparities in sentencing and in prisons if they just refuse to prosecute or take seriously um, things like theft, things like carjackings, things like uh, assaults and robberies. And what we see uh, is that people are opting out of participating in city life and, and opting out of participating in the economy. This is going to drive more people to online retail. It's going to drive people uh, to more work from home situations. And I think outside of the crime issue, which I think we've covered pretty extensively on this podcast and, and is, is such an obvious problem, in terms of public safety and people's ability to live safe, happy lives. But what does this mean, I think, more generally for how we interact um, with our neighbors, how we interact in our communities, what it means to um, participate in the economy um, when we have all of these stores shutting down and people will be more driven to online retail, even more than they have been in the past decade. Um, I, I think it, it doesn't bode well um, for just our ability to um, to to interact with other people in society, to interact with strangers, and the diminishing of those community ties um, can lead to some some really dark places, um, isolation, extremism. Um, we've seen it already happening with the decline of of people um, attending church, attending community groups, and I think this is this is only the latest driver of this sad trend of of isolation, loneliness, and and a lack of community.
All right. On another topic entirely, my final thoughts, John Stewart's coming back to the daily show. Apparently he, I just saw news that he is going to be hosting the show on Mondays. Um, John Stewart's very interesting figure. I think, uh, very talented and obviously a pretty dominant force in American politics for a long time. But in my view, he is personally responsible for kind of destroying debate shows in this country. Uh, he went on Crossfire, which was one of the only shows where Republicans and Democrats met each other on equal ground back when CNN was act actually made some effort to be nonpartisan. Uh, you had people like Tucker Carlson pacing off against Paul Begala, and he ripped them apart for sort of kayfabe and, you know, uh, partisan hackery. But the end result of that has been nothing but um, polarization and siloing of political opinion. Uh, and now we have nothing that really resembles crossfire anywhere on television at all. And Fox and MSNBC are speaking to their respective audiences and not to anybody else. So um, I think that uh, we'll see if John Stewart has anything interesting to say, but on one of his big, you know, jihads, if you will, he was incredibly, incredibly wrong. On behalf of Inez, Will, and Amber, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next NACON Squad.